Well, I'm so glad to be with you here to start this new year off. With your, whether you're here or at home, it's a joy to really be affirmed this morning in the Lord's Word, His promises to us as you've been hearing. I'm Mike Clark. I'm not on staff. I'm a retired pastor with ECO for many years and before that, Presbyterian Church. But I love to be involved in worship and I love to be here. I help lead the men's life. been teaching on the Holy Spirit last couple of years with them on Tuesday mornings. So if you ever feel like guys getting up at, you know, five in the morning, I'd love to have you. We'll start again this Tuesday. Well, I want to focus, though, on new hope this year. New hope, new life in this new year. We can sure use some, can't we? It's ready for us to really be blessed but in a way that we can be a blessing to others. The Lord wants to give us this, give it to us, but we need to ask for it. We need to seek it. Remember, that's what the Lord said. Ask and seek and knock to find those answers to prayer. Not because he's unwilling, but because he wants our hearts to be ready. He wants our lives to be open to what he will bring. So we're gonna seek the sure promise of God for this new year, this new hope, new life. But to do that, we need to seek a fresh perspective from our Lord for our lives and for this church and God's people. The Gospel of John is my favorite book in the Bible. That's something that I have always loved to preach and teach on. But it always amazes me how some very familiar passages just keep unfolding with new meaning and new blessings for me, and I hope that's true for you today. We're going to look at a very familiar passage. It's the feeding of the 5,000, which you're going to hear is really more than 5,000. We find it in John chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 5 and dig into this this morning. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to him to look for him, and turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Let's pause for a moment. Think about that. Jesus was testing Philip. Why would he do that? Well, Jesus loves to test his disciples, and he still does it for his disciples today. He doesn't test us to watch us fail. That's not the point. He tests us to show us how we need to keep relying on him and to succeed. He tests us to help us grow. And I've always found that if I keep this in mind when I enter into difficult situations, that this perspective that God wants to test me, He wants me to turn to Him, be reliant upon Him in these situations, has always helped me get through those difficult trials or temptations that I face. I want to remember Jesus wants me to succeed, and I want you to remember that today as well. So he'll test you. He'll put you in situations where you need to rely on him and then watch what happens. The worst thing we can do when we face difficulties or temptations is to try and do it by ourselves. That's guaranteed failure. We're not going to make it. But when we turn them over to Jesus, watch us succeed. On this occasion, there's a huge crowd of people following Jesus. It's the hill country and the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful land. I've been there many times. It's a sparsely populated area. Even today, there were few villages. 
And on this occasion, Jesus was even farther away from those villages. So it was far away from the people to be able to go into the villages and go to the markets and buy food. So Jesus looks out on this crowd. He sees that they're hungry. He's been teaching them all day long. And he knows they're hungry, and he's concerned about that. He wants to help them. But he also sees this as an opportunity to help his disciples grow, to test them in their faith. So he looks at Philip. Philip was from a nearby village, Bethsaida, and he knew Philip knew the area. So he tests Philip, and he says to him, Philip, what should we do? How are we going to get food for these people? And here's how Philip replies, verse 7. Philip says, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Typical answer for church people, particularly church leaders. He answered like many of us do today. He looked first and only at the limitations of the meager financial resources in the hands of the disciples. The economic reality of the situation blinded him to taking a step of faith. See, actually in the Greek text, Philip shares it would take some 200 denarii. Now, that would be about eight months' worth of wages to feed that group of people that was out there on the hills with Jesus. And his answer right away was, no, Jesus, no way. It's not worth it. We don't have that kind of money. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Could you imagine if we were to feed, and I'm going to tell you, there's really about 20,000 people here. Right? If we were to take 20,000 people from Boulder, there's 100,000 people in Boulder according to the last census. So we're talking about feeding a fifth of the population. But why should we stop there? Let's just say one day we're going to tell all Boulder, anybody can come. We'll feed everyone. How would you react? I figure it would probably cost us a half a million dollars. To, now remember, when Jesus is going to feed these people, he's going to feed them a meal that satisfies them, that fills them. So we need to come up with a meal to feed all of Boulder that's really going to be satisfying, right? People are going to really enjoy it. We're representing the Lord. So half a million dollars. You think that's too much to spend on one meal? What do you think if we took that to the elders, the board of elders? What would they say? <laughs> or what would really any of us say? I mean, that's just a huge chunk of money to spend us on one blowout meal. What would it really accomplish? Is that what we would really think we should do? Now, if we think like Philip all the time, though, and only consider the financial implications of following Jesus, we'll flunk his test every time. We don't take many steps of faith when we use finances as our guide. So, but let's read on. Let's see what happens next. Verse 8. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Oh, but wait. What good is that with this huge crowd? I mean, at least Andrew spoke up and got excited. At least he was looking around. At least he was trying, you know. He found a young boy with some resources that might be able to be used, but then he, he thought about it a minute. Wait a minute. I guess we need a whole lot more than that. That's just not going to work. And, and so he, though he started to step out in faith, he stopped. Why? Because he was practical. You know, us practical people... You give us an idea, and we always, our first response is, no, we can't do that. It's just too much. No. We can't let practicality def defy, defend our faith either. We've got to be careful. 
But if you think about it, it is crazy. I mean, put yourself in the disciples' sandals. I mean, how are they going to feed over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, two fish? I can hear the other disciples chiming in. They're starting to say to Jesus, wait, Jesus, I know you're, you're out there, brother. You, your ideas are always noble. It's, it's always fantastic what you think, but it's just not practical. I mean, it's just too much. Remember, you're the one, Jesus, who told us to count the cost. You're the one that told us you can't build a tower if you don't have the finances for it. You're the one that told us you can't raise an army to fight an army that you're not going to beat. Don't do that. And so why, Jesus, are are you doing this? And you know, sometimes we as a church feel that. You know, this group of people thinking about, or even those at home thinking about, who are we to reach out to Boulder and beyond? Who are we to do all that Jesus wants us to do to feed hungry people, to clothe ragged people, to give water to thirsty people, to tend to the ill, to comfort the weak, to visit those in prison, to share the good news without, with our neighbors throughout this city and beyond, to be a shining light in the midst of our community, to be the salt of the earth? Jesus, really, how can we do that? It's just too much. But you can see the trouble with all this, can't you? The trouble with this is our perspective. The trouble with all this is that we're missing something very important. We're missing the obvious because we're looking at it financially or practically or from our human perspective. We're missing something very important. And I I want to talk more about that in a moment. But I have a little exercise for you now. All right? I want to show you a video. It's a very short clip. And I want you to really focus with me on something. I'm going to give you a task, all right? During this video, this is just something, to, you know, interlude, pause in the middle of the message. During this video, I want you to watch the people in white. They're going to be passing basketballs, all right? Two groups of people. Some are wearing white shirts, all right? One team is the white shirt team. Watch them carefully and count the number of passes the white shirt people make, all right? Ready? Let's give this a try. All right, pay attention here. I know you're having fun now. Let's see if you got it right. How many got 15? Pretty good. Did you see the gorilla? All right. Did you see the gorilla in the room? I didn't the first time. I, I, I'll be honest about this. First time I watched, I was so watching the passes, I did not see the gorilla. I won't ask you to show your hands if you were like me. What did the disciples miss? They missed the obvious. 
They failed to see Jesus standing before them, asking them to do this task. They failed to see Jesus and what he wanted them to do in this situation. And that's one of our big problems with church today. We evaluate our situations. We look at our ministry. We look at our mission based on what we can do. We base it on what finances, what we have, what resources are available, and who we are. We don't base it on what Jesus can do. We, most importantly, don't make our decisions in church on what Jesus can do through us. This leaves most of us saying, can't be done. But you see, when we do that, we don't have the right perspective. We're focused on the wrong things. We're counting the ball instead of seeing the gorilla walk through the group. We're looking around us instead of looking at Jesus before us. So we need to give Jesus a bigger try this year. As he's among us, and when he tells us to do something, that means he'll provide the means so we can succeed. He'll show us the way to overcome the barriers. With Jesus, we will succeed. Let's see what happens and how he had the disciples succeed in this situation. Verse 10, Jesus said, tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. So Jesus begins, as he always does, by bringing order out of chaos. God brings light out of darkness, order from chaos, life from nothing. And so what does he do? He orders this crowd. He has them sit down. And this is where I get my 20,000 people figure, really, that, that are being fed. It noticed they only counted the men. How terrible, how chauvinistic, right? But outside of that time in history, Jesus wasn't concerned about only the men. He was concerned about everyone there. He was concerned about the women, the children as well. So if you take 5,000 men and you add in maybe another 5,000 women, you add in two, two children or maybe more per, you get up to maybe 20,000 people. How would you like to feed 20,000 people? Jesus is set. He is ready to show his disciples how this can be done. He has them sit down. They are ordered. He assigns his disciples the task of taking the bread and handing it out. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they want. I love that Greek word there is. They were satisfied. You ever had a meal where you're just satisfied? You know, you're not over full, but your stomach's nicely full. And you'd go, wow, that was good. That was delicious. They were satisfied. Now, I want you to look at some key things we can learn from Jesus and his disciples and what happened here. The first is, Jesus models for us to always give thanks to God for all we have. Jesus gave thanks with the five bread of loaves. He gave thanks for the two fish, and he did a miracle. But it started with what he had, what was available. God provides and we should be grateful for what we have. When we're not thankful, it shows we're not very trusting, is it? If we don't use what we have now for Jesus, why should Jesus give us more? If we're not wise about using our resources, our time, and our talents and treasures now, why should we have any more? We're misusing them. 
But if we're thankful for them and asking the Lord what we can do to use them for his glory and our greater abundant life, then it changes everything. So first, give thanks for what we have. Then second, take those resources and place them in Jesus' hands. Jesus takes the resources and then he multiplies them. He takes those five loaves of bread. He takes those two uh, fish and he starts to hand them to his disciples. They had baskets. They start going out. They're going, how are we going to do this? They keep coming back, but there's more bread. There's more fish. They keep coming back. There's more bread. There's more fish. You can imagine the look on their faces when they're doing this and the people's astounding uh, feelings at the same time. It just happens over and over as they go out and distribute those resources. We need to take our resources and place them in Jesus' hands and watch what happens. Now, we're not to use those resources without the direction of our Lord. Without Jesus' direction, we're just going to waste our resources. We'll never use it properly. You know, we might have a lot of plenty of ideas. If, if I were to ask each of you to decide, if I were to say, we're going to take half a million instead of feeding all the people in town, what would you do with that money? How many different ideas would we all have? Too many, even to use up that half a million dollars. And maybe we'd begin to fight over it, and we would start to misuse it. What we need to do is what? Seek the Lord's direction for how we should do our ministry, how we should carry out this mission of Jesus, how we should hand out the bread of Jesus. So let's seek his direction. And with the Lord's direction, our resources can be used for success. When, remember, when Jesus is standing in front of us and asks us to do a task, we follow him and he's never going to give us, with, well, he's, let me put this in the positive, he's always gonna give us what we need to succeed. All satisfied, all content, all full. That was a very rare occurrence for people of that day, by the way. Most of the time, they went around hungry, unlike so many of us. We have so much more, but we still can do so much more. Our Lord is an abundant God that we can trust for him to provide. So these are the lessons the Lord wants us to learn today in this place, in this time. Notice Jesus used his disciples to carry out this ministry of passing out the bread, and he still is doing that today. This church's responsibility is to trust Jesus, follow him, do what he says, and pass out the bread of life. Remember Jesus said, I am the bread of life to those around us, to let him organize us in the way that we are effective and will succeed. It's always amazing to me how the Lord takes what we have, and when we're truly trusting Him, amazing things happen, miracles happen. I experienced this when I first came to know the Lord. It was back in the late 60s and early 70s, and it was a time when the Lord began to do amazing things in my community and spreading out throughout, and the time I was living in western Pennsylvania, and I know it was happening in Pennsylvania and Ohio, but I think it was happening throughout the nation where a revival, where the Spirit came upon us and our lives were changed. 
I spoke not too long ago about my youth pastor from those days. I spoke with him about that time. And he conducted a summer camp. And he told me in the first five years of that summer camp's existence, of which I was part, I was a counselor, as well as my wife, he said, from that group, over 50 of us became pastors. And that doesn't count the pastor's wives or those who went into different kinds of ministries. It was amazing what happened. And this spiritual revival spread out throughout that time. Now, we remember that time as a time of, of drug, sex, rock and roll, and political upheaval. But I, for me, will always remember it as a time when I saw what the Lord can do with just a few people. And it became an amazing spiritual revival which transformed our lives forever set me on my life of serving the Lord forever. And once you've experienced that kind of revival, you never forget it, and you always pray for it to happen again. And I long for that revival to happen this year. I long for that to happen among this church and spread out from here. Now, to the world, we're nobodies. But to God, we're somebodies. We are His disciples, that when He's in our midst, when His Spirit is filling us, when we are allowing Him to work through us, Revival can happen. New hope, new life for a new year. We want to keep handing out Jesus' bread to our neighbors. We have so many around us who need to know the Lord. And Jesus gives us the responsibility of taking from Him and sharing this bread of life. So how are we going to do that? What are we supposed to do? Will we keep doing what he asks even when it seems too much? It won't happen if we look only with financial vision. It won't happen if we're only practical. It'll happen when we are faithful, when we'll follow in obedience. What are Jesus' directions for us in 2023? Do you see Jesus pointing a way that we can follow him? None of us can do it in our own strengths. We don't have enough resources, so we should stop doing that. We do that all the time. We make these New Year's resolutions, and friends, you know that 90% of New Year's resolutions within 30 days, they're already gone. We're not talking resolutions. We're talking faithfulness. To do what God already has planned for us to do in this new year. You know, I'd love to know the name of that little boy, wouldn't you? He was responsible for 20,000 people being fed. We don't know his name. I wish, I wish we do. It's one thing I'm looking forward to in heaven. I want to go and find that little boy and say thank you. And I want you to join, please, with me and pray for revival in this new year that would begin with us. It needs to begin here. Uh, I love to barbecue. And you know when you barbecue, if those of you who've done barbecuing, you've got a bunch of coals, but they're, they're not warm at, at all. And you need to put a little something on to get them going, a little spark of something, ignite it, and get it going. And then they start to glow in the middle, red, and then it starts to spread, and those coals around them, it starts catching, and they turn red. And after a while, you have this bright, red, hot barbecue to throw on that beautiful whatever you want to put on it. 
And that's the way it happens with revival. It starts here. It starts within. It starts from our heart in love for our God and asking him to fill us and move through us. And it catches as, as it happens in me and it starts to happen in some of you. Then it starts to, the warmth starts to spread to all those in the church. And eventually, you know what? We become that, that group of red hot embers for God that, that the community doesn't notice something is going on and they see it and they want to be a part of that and they feel the warmth. They feel the love. And so I want to give you five steps quickly to pray and seek revival in this new year, the new perspective of God. Here are the steps. One, know and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's all got to begin right there, doesn't it? Jesus has to be the center of who we are and what we're doing. Secondly, live by his grace and freely offer it to each other. That's what Grace Commons is all about. From this point on, when we took that name, we were saying grace is at the heart of who we are as God's people. We've been given more than we've ever deserved, but now we can share the same grace with those around us. Let's truly be known as Grace Commons, where grace is common among us. Third, be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. We, we have him. Every follower of Jesus, every person who gives their life to Jesus Christ has two things. Look it up in Acts 2. Forgiveness of sins, the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. So be filled with the Spirit and learn to be empowered by him. Don't do it on your own. Do it with God among us today, the Holy Spirit. Be nourished in the fruit of the Spirit Learn to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control emanating from your life because that's what God's work in the Spirit does in and through us. We all have the fruit of the Spirit to grow and become the people of God. And then fifth, develop and discover your spiritual gift. Every follower of Jesus also has a spiritual gift. Using them is the way the church grows. If we will not use our spiritual gifts, this church cannot succeed. This church will not see revival. We have only the way to do it. The only way to do it is through the way Jesus instructs us. Come to him. Follow him. Be forgiven and offer that grace. And be filled with his spirit that the fruit of the Spirit may live through us and the gifts of the Spirit may empower our ministries. That's how Jesus designed us as a church. That's how we succeed. How many of you have been to Hoover Dam? You took the dam tour? We used to joke about that in our family when our kids were little. Let's take the dam tour. As a pastor's kid, you need to do something, you know. And it was an, it's an amazing structure. I mean, if you've been there, it, it impounds Lake Mead, which is the largest reservoir in all the United States by volume when it's full. And its dam generators provide power for public and private utilities in Nevada, Arizona, and California. You can't have all the neon and all the lights of Las Vegas without Hoover Dam. No Hoover Dam, no Vegas as we know it or know a lot of cities as we know them. The water stored behind that dam travels down through 17 huge turbines generating over 2,000 megawatts of electricity, enough to produce power for 1.3 million people every year. That's a dam. That's power. Now, can you imagine what would happen if that power was cut off? 
the lights would dim and go out in many major cities. Hoover Dam would become an amazing engineering wonder, but that would be it. There'd be no generating power from it. And you know, that is a very real possibility right now. Because what generates the electricity through those generators is the water that flows through Hoover Dam, but there's been this drought, you've heard of that in the West? All too much? And the water has gotten so low, it could get to that point where there's not enough water to go through those generators. And then you have this edifice, this beautiful structure with a dried up reservoir behind it and no power going out. And friends, that's what happens in the church, and that's what's happening today in the church when we're not tapping into the source of our power, of our life in Christ. Churches are drying up, and there's no power, there's no light coming out for the communities to see. And friends, we're going to change that. In this year, we're going to say to Jesus, here I am. Fill me. Use me. Show me my gifts. Let me bring glory to your name. And let us together bring light to this community. With revival, we stand strong. With revival, we succeed. With the Spirit, as He is given by Jesus, we'll pass the test. And miracles can happen. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, You're worthy of all praise and glory. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your church, this body of people. I ask your forgiveness for all who've allowed your fire to lie dormant, but I pray you will stir up the Spirit in each of us today and this year. May it always burn brightly for you and never die out. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will inflame your gifts in each of us that we may fulfill our purpose in you and bring glory to your name. We pray for revival in our hearts and in our land. We pray you will revive us again, breathe into us life and purpose that we may all live a fulfilled life. We ask that you will cleanse us and create a right spirit within us, all to your glory and to our abundant life and joy together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.